would like to once again greet the mothers this morning, and would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word. The scripture today is from 2 Corinthians 7, verses 2 to 16, and I believe they're on the screens behind me. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you were in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he is comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. But even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame, but just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus was proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. This is God's word. There's a book that's used in premarital counseling entitled, When Sinners Say I Do. It's written to prepare couples for the difficulties they're going to have in their marriages because each one of us is flawed. You know, perhaps there should be a sequel entitled, When Sinners Become the Church, to prepare us for the difficulties we're going to have in our relationships with each other because all of us are flawed. 
Paul calls the Corinthians saints in the beginning of each letter he wrote to them, not because they live such saintly lives, but because of their standing in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> the same is true for us. We are all sinners, and invariably, we are going to rub against each other. And when we rub against each other, we may well close our hearts to each other and begin to think the worst about one another rather than the best. Now, this can happen in any kind of relationship, but it's especially egregious when it happens in the church because we are the body of Jesus Christ. We are be the, to be the testimony to the world of, what, of who Jesus is. If someone were to say, well, I would believe if I could see Jesus, we should be able to say, come to our church because you will see Jesus lived out in the lives of every one of us and in our relationships with one another. That's why our unity and our open hearts to one another is so precious to God. Ephesians 4.3, he says, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. In Colossians 3.15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed we were called to be one body. The early church was known for the way they loved each other. What about us? Do we love each other, each and every one of us? Or do we have issues with some people that creates a tension to the point where we close our hearts off? Paul would say this morning, open your hearts to one another. Let's pray. Our Father, we are united in the Spirit of God. We're called to maintain that unity as though it already exists because of the Spirit of God. We don't have to create it if we are in your Spirit. Lord, speak to us today. And it might be about relationships we have with someone in the church or someone outside the church. And then, Lord, use your word to speak to each one of us in a special way that we might hear your voice in the area of our lives that you want transformed. In Christ we pray, amen. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, Paul spoke about how he had an open heart to the Corinthians, but they had closed their hearts to him. And he said, open your heart to me. Chapter 7, verse 2, picks up that same theme as Paul wrote, make room in your hearts for us. Because if the Corinthians failed to open their hearts to Paul, if they kept them closed, they would dismiss Paul's teaching. The result would be they would succumb to the legalism of the false teachers or they would succumb to their own passions and live by their fleshly desires. But today, 
It's equally important for us because Christ has called us to love one another and be there for one another. Paul is our model. He shows us what an open heart looks like. He desired the best for them. He respected their spiritual journey, and he built them up, focused on the positives. So when, when we open our hearts to another person, we want the best for them. We want them to feel that we're on their side, that we are for them. And we see this in verses 2 through 7. Paul wanted the Corinthians to feel that he had their best interests at heart, even as he corrected them. Verse 2, make room in your heart for us. We've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. Paul knew that some in Corinth would feel that God was against them because of the hard words he spoke to them. And so he highlighted that there was nothing in his dealings with them other than his desire for their best. He wronged no one. He corrupted no one. He wouldn't take advantage of anyone. Everything he did reflected his genuine care for them. If we are trying to rebuild a broken relationships, perhaps we need to tell the other person, I really want the best for you. And everything I'm doing is because I want that for you. You know, Paul also showed a great sensitivity to where they were, and he also spoke to their hearts. Verse 3, I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. You know, even though Paul wrote those hard words, many hard words, he was assuring them, he didn't write them to condemn them. He wrote them to help them be transformed. He wrote them to help them on their journeys. Never, never was his desire to condemn them. He wanted their best. And they were always in his heart. Always in his heart. And then also, he knew that they would die together and live together. He he saw himself as united with them in death and in life. They were one. He was that connected to them. Notice the order. Usually when someone's saying, I'm really united with you in life and in death. But Paul reverses that order. He reverses that order because Christ reverses that order. We die together, and then we live together eternally. We die and we are resurrected just like Jesus is. So Paul is pointing to that unity that they have in Christ. They're one in Christ, and they're always in his heart, as the next verse shows, verse 4. I'm acting with great boldness toward you, 
And I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort. And in all our affliction, I'm overflowing with joy because of you. Paul revealed the depths of his feelings about them. Pride, comfort, joy. Paul really felt that about the Corinthians. And that should have made their hearts swell and realize that Paul really, really wanted the best for them. But were these words, were they only words? Or could Paul prove that he just wasn't saying what they wanted to hear? And Paul offers proof. Paul's care for the Corinthians was so great that he left an open door for the gospel in order to find out the spiritual state of the Corinthians. His anxiety was so great, that's how great his care was. You know, when we look at chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, and read them next to chapter 7, 5, we see they fit together seamlessly. And the five chapters in between, you could put a parenthesis around those five chapters talking about the new covenant ministry. You could actually take those out and put them somewhere else. And these two verses fit together. I'll read 12 and 13. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. Now chapter 7. For when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. But we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without, fear within. But God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. Not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me. So I rejoice still more. See, Paul's desire for their welfare was so great that his heart rose and fell when he considered their spiritual condition. He was given an open door to preach the gospel in Troas. Who would pass up an open door for the gospel, especially Paul? Why would anyone do that? Paul did because his passion for the Corinthians was so great. It caused an anxiety, a, a lack of rest in his spirit. So he needed to make his way to Macedonia where he might meet Titus to hear about the Corinthians. That's how deep his love was. And then when he gets to Macedonia, he's afflicted at every turn. He's being persecuted. And yet, it's the news that Titus brings about the Corinthians' positive response that's a salve to his soul. It brings him joy in the midst of his affliction. That's proof that Paul wanted the best for them. And he expressed it in a number of ways. That's what an open heart is. Our hearts also respect the spiritual journeys of others. You know, personally, when I've been in tension with another person, I see it as a part of my spiritual journey. I'm careful about my responses, but I don't think 
about the fact that the person I'm in tension with is also on a spiritual journey, that God is working in his or her life as well, and that in many ways God has put us together even through tension to work together to move forward together. So when I begin to realize, wait, we're on a spiritual journey together. I respect their spiritual journey. My heart begins to soften and it begins to open to see what God is going to be doing with us. Paul was emotionally engaged with the Corinthian spiritual journey. And so he wrote about it in verse 8. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I don't regret it. Though I did regret it. For I see the letter grieved you, though only for a little while. See, Paul wrote a letter that confronted the Corinthians. And it grieved them as they were convicted of their sin. Now, some people believe that letter was 1 Corinthians which had a lot of hard things said. Others believe that it was a a letter that's now lost to us. In verses 12 and 13, explain that regardless of the specific problem, Paul didn't regret it because of the pain. Excuse me. In the end, he didn't regret it because the pain led them to repentance. Let me start that one over again. (laughs) Verses 12 and 13 explain that regardless of the specific problem, the real issue was the relationship between Paul and the church. So clearly, it was all about their spiritual journey. How would they respond to Paul's leadership? So when Paul wrote that letter, he was emotionally conflicted. He was so tied to their feelings that for a moment he regretted sending the letter because they were so grieved as a response to that letter. But that was only for a moment because Paul saw that that grief led to repentance. The letter had struck a chord and they were back on the right track. Verses 9 through 11. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For I foresee, see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourself, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you proved yourself innocent in this matter. See, when people are convicted about their sin, they can go in one of two directions. They can go into a sorrow that leads to death, or a sorrow that leads to life. Our passage doesn't tell us what that sorrow to death is, but it's possible this type of sorrow is that which is 
heartbroken over the consequences of the sin, not the fact that that sin has offended God. And people end up languishing in the consequences of their sin. Another possibility is they feel sorrow over their sin, and so they try to pay for that sin through feeling worse and worse and worse about that sin rather than turning to Jesus Christ for forgiveness. Judas is an example of that and how it actually led to physical death. This disciple who betrayed Jesus felt tremendous sorrow over what he had done. He couldn't get through it. He didn't turn to God for forgiveness. Instead, he hanged himself. That is not a path to ever follow. But if we continue to beat ourselves up over sin, if we don't turn to Christ, it leads to an inner death and despair. Our passage does give us a clear understanding of the sorrow that leads to life. It's a sorrow that brings repentance. Now, repentance means to change directions. We are heading in one direction toward our sin, away from God. To repent is to change direction away from our sin and toward God. Their sorrow did that, and we can see the impact of it in this verse when he says, see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. As they grieved over their sin, they earnestly wanted transformation. It wasn't superficial. It cut deep into them. They were eager to clear themselves, which means they never wanted these sins as a part of their life again. So no one could ever say, there you go again. They had tremendous indignation about their sin. I believe it renewed a new sense of fear of God. It, they were now putting God in his proper place, taking themselves off the throne and putting God there. And what zeal, and I believe it's zeal for God, zeal to follow God. What punishment, and I believe that means that their grief they felt, the, the discipline God brought upon them, they welcomed because of the transformation it would bring in their lives. And so what he writes, at every point you proved yourself innocent in this matter, he's not saying, oh, you showed that you actually weren't being the people I said you were. No, what he means is that now, now as they have a new beginning, that's not going to be a part of their lives anymore. Godly sorrow. We need to have it. We need to understand it. But how do we, how do we get the godly sorrow? It's through confession of sin. See, the word confess means to say the same thing as. And when we confess our sins, we are saying the same things about our sin that God says. We feel about our sins what God feels. 
It means that we are as appalled and horrified and nauseated about our sin as God is. Now, when we reach that point, we never want that sin in our lives again. And we turn from it, and we turn to God. So, I believe that's the process they went through. They were confronted with their sin. They saw it, and God saw it. They had godly sorrow over it, received the forgiveness, and then changed directions through the repentance. That is the sorrow that brings life and salvation. The Corinthians felt indignation about their sin. That led to life change. See, Paul knew they were on a spiritual journey. He respected that journey, and he felt for them. He felt their pain, and he was pained over it. That's how united he is to them. That's how respectful. We might even say that he cheered them on their spiritual journey. So the open heart wants the best for another. It respects the spiritual journey, sees, sees that we're all on a spiritual journey. And whereas the closed heart focuses on the weaknesses and negatives, the open heart focuses on the strengths and the positives. You know, Paul could have kept his gaze on the negatives of the Corinthians. There continued to be a number of them. And he challenged them about their faults, but he had an open heart to them. He saw these faults in light of the good qualities, their good characteristics, and he expressed his appreciation for what they were doing right. We need to imitate Paul. We, we see his response in verses 14 through 16. Beyond our own comfort, we rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater. As he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling, I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. You know, see how Paul praised them? How he built them up, zeroed in on, on the good things they were doing? And he even comes to the point where he says, I have complete confidence in you. How much this made them feel. You know, it's important for us to let people know the positives we think about them. Detail them specifically. It helps build them up. But even better is when we praise them to other people and we share that with them. And when we hear that others praise them, we tell them that we heard others praise them because that's exactly what Paul's doing here. He tells them what he said about them to Titus and what Titus has said to him about them. When we do that, it's, it's much deeper. When we say, hey, you know, my wife and I were just talking about 
you and how, how, how much you mean to us and what you've been doing and how you are this way. Uh, that's a lot better than me saying, you know, hey, I really appreciate it and we should be doing this. But there's a, there's a power in the fact that we're not just saying it to them, we're saying it to others and they hear that. And of course, they begin to realize how much we care. We are building them up. Paul shared that he boasted to Titus about the Corinthians. He detailed many of their good qualities. And then he cited Titus's feelings about the Corinthians. Titus rejoiced over them. His spirit was refreshed by them. He saw all their positive qualities that Paul had boasted about. He shares this in the letter, that Titus's affections continued to grow for them. Imagine how they must have felt. You mean Paul said these things about us? And Titus said these things about us? Wow. What a relationship builder. What a, what a picture of an open heart toward another person. You know, sure, each of us has weaknesses and faults. And in time, they may be, need to be addressed. But if these become central, if the negatives become central in our minds our hearts will gradually close and their hearts will close toward us. Instead, focus on the great qualities and it begins to widen our hearts toward each other. Relationships are invariably spiraling in one of two directions. They're either getting better and better and better or they're getting worse and worse and worse. Our hearts open wider and wider and wider or they close and close deeper ways. What changes the direction is grace. The grace that we give to one another, which leads to positive thinking about each other. And when grace happens, the downward spiral stops and it starts moving upward. You know, as I developed this message, I've often thought about open hearts, and I was excited that this passage gave me three tangible ways in which we show we have open hearts. But there is those ways where to desire the best for others, to respect their spiritual journey, and to build them up by focusing on the positives. But there was something that excited me much more, and that was the realization that Jesus has that same heart toward me and you. His heart is open wide to us. He does desire the best for me. He desires the best for you. Even if he confronts you in your sin, it's because he wants the best in you. And he proved beyond all doubt, no matter what we experience in life, that he wants the best for us by dying on the cross for us. He respects our spiritual journey. When he convicts us of sin, which breaks our heart, it breaks his heart that he had to do that. He reflects Paul's conflicted feelings 
about the pain that he caused. That feeling of, uh, should I have really done this? Jesus never has that question. He knows he should do it. But that same feeling of, the pain is so great I caused. I myself hurt that I had to cause that pain. But he realizes that pain is what can bring repentance and change lives. Jesus sees the beauty of what that pain can cause. A repentance that ultimately leads to joy as we become more and more like Christ. Our pain is great when we realize the depths of our sin. And Jesus is just as pained for us. And while Jesus knows every one of our flaws, he treasures the positives. When we sin, he advocates for us. As we grow, he entrusts us with his life-giving word. And when we're being transformed, he probably is boasting about us. Perhaps as God boasted about Job when he said, have you seen my servant Job, how righteous he is? Or perhaps how Jesus boasted about David who was riddled with sin, but boasted he's a man after God's own heart. Jesus boasts about us. And ultimately, Jesus shares his glory with us. So that's an open heart. Let us mirror Jesus' open heart by opening hearts to each and every one of each other. Let's pray. Our Father, wow. May your spirit drive home, especially the end of that sermon, the sermon to me, of what Jesus feels about me. And he drives that home to each person here, what Jesus feels about them. And that we would find joy even in the painful process of what you do as you convict us of sin. We thank you for the forgiveness you bring that you lavish upon us in your grace. May we walk in that. May it draw us to love you as we see the incomprehensible magnitude of your love for us. In Jesus' name we praise. Amen. <laughs>